1: God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello everybody, welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood and my guest today is comedian and archaeologist Casey Martin-Stone. Casey and I had a great conversation about hominids, humanity's impact on the environment, the evolution of bipedalism, the ethics of contacting uncontacted tribes, basically all things humanity as we sat down together to watch episode 13 of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, The Compulsive Communicators.
0: I belong to the most widespread and dominant species of animal on Earth. We live on the ice caps of the pole and in the tropical jungles of the equator. We've climbed the highest mountain and dived deep into the seas. We've even left the Earth and set foot on the moon. Why should this be? Well, the story starts back in Africa.
2: So yeah we still think it's out of Africa that modern humans originated there and went out other species also left Africa yeah. um but yeah more species of hominid have been found over the last couple of decades and
1: can you fill me in on that because the like I always knew that there was neanderthal and homo habilis and homo yeah. erectus and all these things yeah. but it's only <laughs> it's only recently that I reckoned with the actual reality of that there was a time mm-hmm. where there were multiple species of human being. Yeah. Well, not human being, but, you know.
2: Hominids. Hominids, yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Yeah, um, Roaming around and. They are human. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so they're.
1: they're- is it actually, is that, is that the classification?
2: Um, it's, well, we call them hominids mm. and uh, they're human-like species. Yeah. And so the, you go back to. The ancestors before that, the ancestral species, and uh, then it gets a little bit more complicated as, as far as we know. So mm. there was uh, Neanderthals. Mm. There's Homo uh, floresiensis, which was the hobbit found in Indonesia on Flores Island. I was would... when
1: you say hobbit, what do you mean? Like a three uh, foot five type three, of Three human? foot six.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry.
2: (laughs) Not to About four feet. Um, So they found a female hobbit. I was invited to go on this dig and I said no. Why? Because I didn't have $1,000 for an airfare. (sighs) Did you know that
1: they were going to find little hobbits? No,
2: you never know what you're going to find. So this was the find of the century. Wow. And it was interesting because the guy that found it was my... Um, partner at the time, his honours supervisor, yeah. and I was thinking about doing honours, and uh, I was chatting to him, and he and I was in Darwin, and he's like, "Oh, just grab an airfare. I'll cover your accommodation and meals once you get there. Come and yeah. we'll dig." And I thought, "Oh, I don't have a thousand dollars, and um, my daughter's at school, and I can't really justify the time." So I said no, and they found the Hobbit, and so, it
1: Lord of the Rings is real.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, there's arguments about that as well. So, so Mike, who found it, was an archaeologist, and you need a paleoanthropologist to describe the type specimen and confirm that it's a new species. Mm. And so the paleoanthropologist went over and they had arguments because Mike wanted to call it the Hobbit. And Peter's like, this is serious. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just become known as the Hobbit of Flora's Island. And yeah, and so she's about three and a half to four feet tall. Her feet are as long as her shins. And... Wow. Yeah. So she's short. She's got short legs and long feet. feet Yeah. Yeah, well. But there's also been new discoveries of Neanderthals everywhere across Europe. There Mm. have been species of humans sort of found.
1: um, All told, how many species all up were there?
2: Uh, We don't know, because we could still find some more. But approximately,
1: like, no now.
2: at the moment, I'd say four or five that we know of. Of of hominids uh, in total? uh, No, of contemporaneous hominids over the last couple of hundred thousand years. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, but but overall, so it goes right back to our um, most recent common ancestor with chimpanzees, which are the other apes that are closest to us. So that most recent common ancestor was about five million years old. Uh So since then, every... Uh, species that evolved on our lineage, uh, there's heaps and we don't find them because how do they get preserved? How yeah. do they get found? Like, it's it's so much luck is involved in, yeah. in all of that. But yeah, there's, there's lots. But for a long time, we thought we knew what it was. We thought out of Africa, Homo erectus came out, Homo neanderthalensis came out, mm. Homo sapiens came out, mm. they killed the Neanderthals and took over the world. And that's not the way it happened. So uh, they shagged the Neanderthals. We are <laughs> hybrids. Um, and lots of us, most of us, have Neanderthal DNA. Australian Indigenous people don't because they had come to Australia or, or, you know, beyond the reach of Neanderthals before modern humans and Neanderthals started fucking. So, yeah, and I think people of modern-day African ancestry don't have Neanderthal DNA in theirs either. So, yeah, but so much is being done in the DNA space and it's fascinating that we can learn so much about people. Um, So I remember back when I was studying in the 90s, it took years to sequence the human genome Mm. and now you can just discover, you know, research the whole genome of a species in, I don't know, days, months. Wow. Um, Yeah, so we know so much more. Hard to keep up though.
1: Is it true that there was a species of giant human?
2: I would say no. Um, I saw
1: some BuzzFeed article where it was like, the giant found in, this, in the cave. Oh, yeah. Is that like, real? There's,
2: it's so, no. Well, there's tempting, there, there are giant individuals, but yeah. that's not species-wide. And so yeah. there's some medical conditions that lead, lead you to be a giant human. So there was a guy called James Byrne, and he was over two metres tall, massive Irish guy. And this was in the 19th century when medical curiosities and specimens were a big thing and um, surgery was a a new field of study and so there was a lot of trade in body parts and dead people and the suppliers of dead bodies couldn't keep up with the demand from the surgeons wanting to cut people open and so... um,
1: For research.
2: Yeah, so these enterprising people in Edinburgh, Burke and Hare, started killing people to... Supply and trade. Like, because before that, it was. I know
1: it's awful. What do you mean? Like sending goons out in the street to. Oh, I think get they did people. it
2: themselves. Like, yeah. So, because they used to. All the um, people who were given capital punishment, yeah. w- their body was then taken to the surgeon's school. Yeah. And so there wasn't enough. And there were grave robbers who would take fresh graves and all of that. And there were. Funeral home operators that were in on it that would like sandbag the coffin and sell the body on. And
1: where does it stand? Because obviously, you know, I mean, I often think about how our entire civilization obviously is built on just incremental Mm. horrors and mistakes and, you know, how many people had to die before we figured out what berries and mushrooms you can and can't eat and on and on and on on, on and on and on and on. Yeah. And obviously, you know, with the the history of grave robbing and killing people for this, but so unethical and horrible, 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 but something like, it's,
2: it's that classical, classical classic ethical conundrum yeah. where if you could go back in time and abort Hitler, huh.
1: would you? No. You
2: wouldn't. Well. Because you know about the benefits to humanity that came out of the
1: reason. No, mind's no, a purely selfish reason. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to kill him after he's born.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my
1: yeah, hands yeah, yeah, on him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's that thing of like... A, a, the Holocaust is a, a horror beyond horrors, obviously. Mm, I mean, perfect. my family were involved in it. Yeah. The, it's a purely selfish thing. If the Holocaust hadn't happened, I wouldn't exist. Yeah. People make these grand declarations about how they can change time and space. And it's like, no, no, no. If Hitler's dad had blown three and a half seconds before or after he did, the entire Holocaust wouldn't have happened. Yeah, exactly. Or it would have happened in some other form. Like some other person chance. would have come up. The whole thing is just this entire sliding doors reality. Yeah. So if you kill Hitler before he's born, I mean, I'm not saying the reality we currently inhabit is great. I have a lot yeah. of issues with it and, 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 and I have to numb myself to it. Yeah. But I don't know what the reality would be... if I, I mean, maybe it'd be a paradise, but maybe it'd be much worse. I have no idea. Well, you know, it, it's the same reason I don't ever... You know, when I was <laughs> when I was a child and Home Alone was a big thing, I used to pray to God that I would wake up as Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> oh,
0: that is so cute.
1: <laughs> I was like, oh, please, because he must have such a great life. And it's like, you know, and, and as you get older, obviously, it's like, no, it was an awful life. But beyond that, like, I wouldn't wish... To be in any other head, no matter how much I envied another person's experience or life, because I don't know what the inside of their head is actually like. Mm. And their life could be great, but the inside of their head could be a nightmare. Yeah. And mine is a nightmare, but it's a manageable one. And, you know, I've got a handle on it. So I wouldn't make the trade.
2: But that's exactly the point of that ethical conundrum, Mm. because at a very simplistic level, you say, well... Hitler killed was responsible for the deaths of millions of people. Mm. So it makes sense that if you can prevent that, you would. Of course. But out of World War II came so many medical advances and technological advances mm. that that has led to where we are today. Like Bluetooth was invented during World War II. Mm. By a woman, Hedy Lamarr, yay! <laughs> um, and so, yeah, going back to the grave robbing and the killing and the um, mm. unethical collection of humans... Um, it's led to mm. modern-day surgical techniques that mm. now keep us all alive. So then there's the argument over should we be alive, which quickly mm. degenerates into genocide when you or eugenics when yeah. you say, well, well, the planet can't support this many people. But So we were talking about giant humans. So yeah. James Byrne said he did not want to be collected by the body collectors and he yeah. didn't want to end up as a specimen, but he did. Did, of course. So they got him in the yeah. end and they had him on display. I've seen his... Skeleton and it's massive. Um, And the Hunterian Museum closed down for renovations about three years ago. And his body was repatriated to his descendants, and he got the burial at sea that he always wanted to. So yes, Mm. giant humans do exist, but not as a species. I got back to the point.
0: Yay! Very good. We're certainly the most numerous large animal. There are something like 4,000 million of us today. And we've reached this position with a meteoric speed. Uh, it's all happened within the last 2,000 years or so. We seem to have broken loose from the restrictions. ...that have governed the activities and numbers of other animals.
1: He says four hundred, four billion people. We're yeah. now at double that. Yes, we are. Uh, and that's what 30, 40 years later. Yeah, uh, it's
2: really fascinating. It's not I good, recommend is it? to you and to anyone that's interested to have a look at a website called Our World in Data, and look at global <sighs> population. And we all got very used to logarithmic graphs over the last twelve months. And this yeah. one logarithmic graph is just phenomenal because it's over the last twelve thousand years yeah. how the human population has grown. And essentially, right up until the nineteenth century—it's a very gradual increase, and mm. then the line just goes vertical. Mm. And so, when you had the great plagues of the sixteenth century, yeah. etc., that <laughs> caused a little bit of a blip. Um World War One, the Spanish Flu, World War Two—no blips at all. Like it's just
1: really, yeah,
2: didn't didn't make it <laughs> really. Sense. Yeah, we are just we're we're exploding. It's not good, is it? I would say no, but I'm beginning to be convinced that as a human species, we can design what we need to cope. But I do
1: think that's not we good, need... though, is it? Isn't that denying no, some primal need cool. to be with like what we really are and what we have been for longer than what we are currently?
2: Yeah, does that I... make
1: sense? What did you say? Well,
2: I think so. Like <laughs> I'm already trying to think in my brain about um, how do you justify population control.
1: In, in the can't. '80s
2: and '90s, with the one-child policy in China, it was such a big deal, and we all looked on in horror. And now they have something like 80 million more men of marriageable age than available women, and it's yeah. a huge yeah. socio-cultural problem. <sighs> um, and But the rest of the world, we've just been popping out babies. So the answer to overpopulation is education of women.
1: Hmm, Everywhere.
2: Course, yeah. Educated women have fewer children. Hmm. And so, but also educated women contribute to a greater wealth of all societies. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a simple answer, but I don't think what we're doing is sustainable. Like, So, it's over the last 150 years that the population has gone from 1 billion to 8 billion.
1: <sighs> It's a horror, right? Like, it is. I'm, I, like I'm, I, like I'm not a big fan. Of, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of people. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I like individual people, but groups of yeah. people. It's just, I guess, in my mind, also, it's the, it's the metric of uh, obviously, a human life is worth a profound, un, like yeah. limitless amount of yeah. value. They're, like they're, to even use you the word value is you perverse. You can't put a value on it. Yeah. Of course. But like, it, it couldn't be that much more than, like, a blue whale.
2: Well, see, this is the Could thing. It? We are all animals. And I think one yeah, of the exactly. beautiful things about paleoanthropology and archaeology in general is you look at such large timescales. Yeah. So I think I remember when you asked something about what the world would be like in 100,000 years, and I'm like, oh, we'll be gone. Yeah. Like, we won't exist anymore. Of course. <laughs> and so of course. And it's going to be a lot sooner than that. Of is course. 5,000 years? Maybe.
1: Do you mean by that that we will be extinct or that we will have evolved into something else.
2: Either or. And so that kind of gets back to um, species and evolution and how it happens. So in the studies of evolution, is it out of Africa or multi-regional continuity where people evolve the same with a bit of gene flow across regions? And so we all lean towards out of Africa on that side. Um, And then there's, is evolution gradual or do you have speciation events? Mm. Um, And most people tend to go, oh, well, it's gradual. But it depends on on the pressures, and there's this lovely story of moths in London that I yeah, love yeah. in the Industrial Revolution. Do you know this one?
1: I do, the black and white moths. Exactly,
2: yeah. yeah. So th- three-quarters of the population were white, and yeah. one-quarter were black, and yeah. they'd be on the buildings, and then when the Industrial Revolution led to all the pollution, turned all the buildings black, the black moths survived, and so they became dominant, fairly few, through mm. the survival of the fittest. Mm. And to those conditions, it doesn't mean they're better moths. Mm. And so the humans that will survive thousands of years from now, are the ones that are better suited to the conditions they find themselves in. And we are rapidly changing our conditions. Yeah. So someone will survive in some way, but not us like this.
1: What you said before about thinking in the timescales is true. Like I've Mm. been getting really into kind of mnemonically learning the um, ages of the earth. Yeah. Just to... You know, it's a humbling exercise and just Four a way of being like- Four billion years. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and what really wrecked my brain Ed, was that it was 2.5 billion years before there was anything yeah. multicellular. Yeah. That is- And then, you know, even then it's another billion years of just multicellular guys figuring out their hey. variations and then that hits that point. Yeah. What is it, 850 million years ago where things start gaining yeah, something not resembling nothing. form? Yeah. And then from then on it's just this- escalation that is just frighteningly fast. Well,
2: exactly. And so dinosaurs became extinct. And one of the things, like these are big numbers. So yeah. I often say, think of it as dollars. Yeah. Um, so $64 million is a lot of money. And so that's when uh, dinosaurs yeah. became extinct. Yeah. And, and mammals were starting then. Yeah. And we had the megafauna about 15 million years ago and down through to um, a few thousand, 20,000. Yeah. Um, modern humans... Round about two
1: hundred to $300,000 yeah. years. I know. It's, it's,
2: yeah, it's, it's
1: a blink. It's beyond. But all of it, I mean, if, I used to think about dinosaurs, like that's such a long time ago. It's no, no, it's really not. Yeah. It's really not, <laughs> like in, in, in the deep scale oh, yeah, time of it. yeah,
2: yeah. And so it's... I went and saw a, a lecture by Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, mm. and he's all about deep space and deep time. Deep and time, yeah. yeah, and just when, so I think about the planet and think this is amazing, but he thinks about the universe <laughs> and the time scale of the universe is unimaginable to me.
1: Yeah. So. It's, well, you can only do it in metaphor. I heard a great one the other day where it was like it was, I was learning about the sun mm-hmm. and how long it takes a photon of light yeah. when it's born in the core of the sun to work its way to the surface mm. and then, you know, take the seven minutes to hit our eyes. Yeah. The, a photon of light that's hitting our eyes now takes about 200,000 years.
2: Oh, that's amazing.
1: So we emerged... <laughs> as a species, around the time that the light that's hitting our eyes was born in the sun. It's, that's it's very nice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what I think is that learning all of these things and getting an appreciation for the time scale and the impact of change gives us a greater appreciation of what we have. Yeah. And so this is the thing. You can sit here and know that well, we shouldn't have aborted Hitler and um, some of these things had to happen for us to have the life that we have. Um, But then it's like, what are our responsibilities moving forward? Mm. And how much can one person affect change? And and that, I think, comes down to how much do you believe in the butterfly effect, that one thing you do will have massive impact. I tend to think that uh, we need systemic change Mm. much sooner than we need individual change. Yeah, Makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, but it's just the house. That's where it falls apart in my head. You know, I look at the, you know, the climate and the state of just the environment and everything. And it would, it it will have to be a global effort. It Mm. will have to be everyone on board. Doesn't? It's not going to work if everyone's on board and America's like, nah. (laughs) Well, this is the
2: thing. And how do we? I mean, it's
1: and then and then it just goes into these like gnarly concepts. Like, well, the only way would have to be a one-world government basically global dictatorship, going, hey, Brazil, you don't get to burn your forest down anymore. That's the world's forest, yeah. not your forest, yeah. like, confined by national borders, Um, which then goes into a whole new order of QAnon rabbit hole and it's just like, <laughs> I don't want to fucking do it. But, you know, I mean, I, you look at it and it's like, I don't know if you saw Attenborough's um, uh, witness statement that uh, the uh, uh, oh. "A Life on Earth" or I can't remember what it's called, but he talks in that about you know like it's going to take massive reforestation, it's going to basically take a complete dismantling of the industrialised meat industry, mm. just on and on and on, and oh, all these things. Great. It's like people are this is this is just not going to happen until everything's on fire, and even then, I don't yeah, think so. Well, exactly. we'll just get better air conditioners. Yeah, well, exactly.
2: The technology keeps changing. Oh. Yeah, so it's scary, and um, I think one of them for scary things is feeling powerless against it. Mm. So, so some of us do go vegetarian and plant trees and um, get rid of cars and, and all of mm. that. And, um, but that doesn't necessarily work.
1: No, that's when it becomes like your own personal cosmology and it's like the only way I can feel right in this system that I find absolutely apparent, mm. uh, then I have to check myself out of it as much as I yeah. can. Yeah, exactly. uh, obviously, you must also reckon with the fact that if you're in it, you're participating in it, and <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly. unavoidable unless you're willing to live in a shack in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, go spinning, off grid and... Yeah, um, and spinning clothes out of the silkworm, but Sheep. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sheep, Grow of course, your own <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't want to be one of those we people. We can't all
2: be earth mothers, and there's not enough space for all of us to do that anyway, so no. we need to address the systems.
0: Ten million years ago, apes had come down from the trees. Those ancient apes included among them the ancestors of mankind. They can be called, in fact, ape men. If they were threatened by a predator, no doubt they would pick up a stick to try and defend themselves, as indeed I would. Well, I only had vultures to deal with that time, and I didn't even... Need a stick. If there'd been hyenas, well, I guess I would have needed it. I mean, I think I could have got rid of them. (laughs) (laughs) Such a
2: masculine view of the evolution of bipedalism. There is a competing theory of thermoregulation. So you see he's talking about how they're going across the plains, as we call savannah stands, so these lovely long grasslands where people can freely move thermoregulation is about how you manage your body heat and if you're on four legs your back is exposed to the sun in the middle of the day and you can't move as far and so bipedalism means that the sun is only hitting the top of your head and so right. you uh, you can go further and faster and long not faster because four legs is quite fast but you can it's that um the tortoise and the hare sort of thing that like the longer you go at a steady pace the further you get than yeah. you go in faster shorter bursts yeah. and so yeah the um the idea Yes, it was handy to stand up and carry stuff, um, tools and weapons and that sort of thing. But there's more of a uh, survival mechanism in managing your own heat than yep. there is of, um, you know, whacking people off with a, whacking <laughs> whacking lions off with a stick, as the morning <laughs> show hosts would say. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I I like where he's going, but yep. I, we've learnt more. Well, we we like to think we know more. Now.
1: (laughs) And of course, in what, another 50 years, it'll be completely different again?
2: Well, quite possibly, because these are all just ideas. And how can you say that one is fact? So you can just say it's your theory and and test it. And I I tend to like the thermoregulation theory because it applies to so many um, different ways of um, evolution. So to become bipedal, it's not just that you need to be able to stand up and hold a weapon and Uh. have better fingers for that, your whole pelvis shape changes, which makes it more difficult to give birth. Um, And so human women have had greater um, maternal mortality than any other species because we've sacrificed that over the ability to move bipedally. Mm. And so um, you also have to evolve... Your skull. So when you're a quadruped, that your spine comes out of the back of your skull. Mm. You have to move that foramen magnum, the big hole, mm. um, underneath the centre of your skull, uh-huh. and and that takes time. And evolution is not. You know, one guy stood up and walked, and suddenly he was more than yeah, human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, of
0: course.
2: It's it's this genetic change yeah, that selects yeah, yeah. people, um, preferentially that have these deformities. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Until yeah. the
2: deformity becomes the norm.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the thing with evolution. Where, you know, similar to not seeing someone for years and years and years, and it's they incrementally got different and if you'd been with them every day you never would have noticed but suddenly the change is there and they are that thing yeah exactly of of, of all evolution
2: yeah and it depends on the environmental pressures so like the moths in London Mm. um, if there is a sudden change in environmental pressures where it is more advantageous to stand upright then those are the ones that will survive and fuck Um, the other thing about global population that we were talking about they there's this theory that it was guns germs and steel that Mm. made us um, have a population boom that the other theory is the grandma hypothesis and this is that we um, gained a quality of life that meant we lived old enough to become grandparents. Mm. And grandparents mm. like to look after the grandkids. Mm. And when they're looking after the kids, you can fuck more so you can have more kids. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, so they blame it all on the grandmas. Now, I think grandmas are lovely. Um, uh. There was this really interesting thing about the Inuit population in North America, where when there were too many people and not enough resources, they would put the older women oh, the yeah, an ice flow. on an ice flow and push, push them out to, to sea. Through. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay, there's true? no ice left now. Um, I think it's true. I should find a, re, a, a reference for that, but, yeah, because I, I do use that story in my show sometimes, and so I should, I should back it up. But, yeah, um, the grandma hypothesis is that caring is what allows our species to survive. And I think we've found this in 2020 as well, where people that were ready for the apocalypse thought it was all guns and tin food. And it wasn't. It's wear a mask and care for others. Mm.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. I had the chance to cross one of the last patches of unexplored country in central New Guinea. The tribesmen living on the river who came with us said that there were people living in these dense forests, that they saw them only rarely and knew only one word of their language, their name. Biami. But no European had ever seen them. Although our two societies had never come into contact before this moment, it seemed that many of our gestures did have the same meaning. These nods and smiles, frowns and head shakes, were surely not mere conventions, but deep in us, gestures that may well have been used by our distant ancestors, upright men.
1: So we just saw David meet a tribe of people that had no interaction with Western civilization. The Biyami. The Biami. Yeah. And the point was communication using innate gestures. Mm-hmm. What What are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I don't have a lot of experience in that kind of thing. That's more anthropology than archaeology. Yeah. I have personal views on contacting uncontacted Indigenous people because I think there's a lot of risk there. Yeah. Uh, and particularly now where there are still a few pockets of, um, communities that haven't been effectively contacted. There. Are there? Yeah, in South really? America. Yeah, and it's, uh, and there's also, oh, did you see the one, the island off, uh, in the Indian Ocean where God, they absolutely weird. don't want any people coming.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and there was an American evangelist that went out in a boat and got killed
1: because yeah. that's what they do. Um, was there any retribution for that? Like, no one okay, came and...
2: Not as far as I'm aware against okay. Indigenous people, no, because yeah. the um, the local governments of neighbouring islands know to leave these people alone. Yeah. like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And they helped to protect them. So the evangelists apparently, like, paid some fishermen to take him as close as they can, and even the fishermen didn't want to hang around oh, because they God. knew how bad it was. And he was like, he wanted to take the spirit of the Lord and, yeah, um, you know, save their heathen souls. And, yeah, Great so guy. they killed him. Yeah. Um, but in South America, there are some uncontracted... Con- contacted uh,
1: tribal groups. And they have no comprehension that oh, there they is know this... Oh, Okay, us. right. And okay.
2: so because what's happened is people go over with planes and helicopters... Yeah, of and, Yeah, and try to go in and contact them. But, of course, um, the common cold is something that they haven't been exposed to. And so any um, diseases and that sort of thing tend to wipe out... Groups of people very quickly when they don't have immunity to them, and so that's the biggest risk. And that's I think one of why the island community whose name I can't remember now in the Indian Ocean is so adamantly that uh, against visitors because oh. they know uh, that visitors bring death and disease. Of
1: course, but and it's not just that. I would have to assume that you know if you're an uncontacted tribe no. and you're living in a, a society in a uh, that. Uses the nature and mm-hmm. natural resources. Yeah, Do you see a f- plane flying. Just just the sight of seeing a plane flying overhead would completely change the nature of your reality. Surely, if you didn't Not. know that that well, existed, was,
2: uh, I imagine the first time. Yes, yeah. um, and I think one of the things I think is that humans everywhere ask questions and tell stories. Mm. And so they make sense of their world with whatever information they have and that's the basis of all religions. Um, And so if you don't know, you make shit up. And so you describe things and assign meaning in whatever whatever suits you at the time for whatever Mm. your purposes are at the time. So I don't profess to know how everybody interprets a plane flying overhead. I have read accounts of um, the last contacted Central Australian Indigenous people that came out of the desert and mm. how they were contacted. and uh, Some of them went back because they did not like um, what Western civilization, for another of a better word, had brought... But yeah, I think, uh, so in the South American experience, they live in the Amazon basin and there's a huge risk at the moment because of unregulated logging and um, large companies pillaging the forest Mm. uh, against laws. And so, yeah, they're just encroaching on these lands that people are using for survival and have used for thousands of years. So yeah, I have very strong views on the fact that that shouldn't happen. Um, but I don't know enough about it to yeah, yeah, yeah. to be fully informed. Yeah. So, yeah, your question was about the Biami people and how, yeah. what that was like. I found it very interesting that it was only men that came mm. and obviously the um, visitors were wanting more people, women and children I'm assuming they wanted to meet as well mm. and that would be interesting. But, yeah, I, th- I wonder about that from a cultural perspective uh, in most cultures are men given the role of protector. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, I find it strange to think of yourself as a discoverer. Um, going on an exploration adventure. And I know I go out into remote Arnhem land and I document rock art and that kind of thing. I don't say I found it or I discovered it because... People knew it was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like Machu Picchu in Peru. So Hiram Bingham, I think, was the white guy that said he found it, Mm. uh, and people now go and hike six days into it. He uh, got a local to ride him in a cart (laughs) (laughs)
0: Really?
2: (laughs) To take him and show him the thing he was looking for. He's like, Uh. I have discovered this ancient settlement. Um, Yeah, like Uh.
0: that.
2: So that whole notion of um, discovery and conquering, I think, think is very problematic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm against it. But I also think it's very interesting to learn about people who still have um, tribal subsistence ways of living and that they live purely from their environment in Mm. a way that is sustainable. So Mm. I think we could learn a lot from them, but only if we approach them as people able to teach us rather than, oh, look, we are bringing you civilization, We are bringing you clothes and disease, you know. But
1: I think it's also the nature of our culture and our civilization to just consume. Like, nothing is done altruistically. Mm. (laughs) Not nothing, but in the main. Like, you know, it's it's that whole cultural thing thing of, you know, whatever the punk rock art of the moment is, is just then consumed by the machine and yeah. turned in, you know, th- 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 there's ads on TV now that mimic Tim and Eric's Adult Swim show. And it's like, <laughs> what? Like, so now – yeah. and thus it has ever been, you know. Remember, mm. Do you remember when Banksy wasn't just an awful cliché? It what was exactly? actually like, yeah, whoa, this guy age. is fucking yeah. – <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like it, it just – I, 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 I think the – Whatever capitalism, or just this consumer, the whole the whole yeah. society is geared towards consumption. So we could never approach an uncontacted tribe of people with without outro- them. because even the notion of wanting to learn from them is still us taking oh, from absolutely, them. It's absolutely, absolutely. It's not just leaving it be.
2: Well, it's not respecting them as having equal right to their culture as we have to ours. And and to their perception
1: of reality and all of it, because, yeah,
2: it's... Yeah, um, their realities are just as valid as ours, and who are we to say we're right? And it's really weird being a white person self-flagellating on these things, because uh, how much difference does it make? It, It makes some difference to... Um, be aware of these things and take steps and be careful in your language and your actions and mm. encourage other people to um, think and to treat other um, people from other cultural groups with respect and mm. equality. So I think it's important, but I'm also just very aware that I am just a white person looking at other cultures in uh, and people. Like it's not just... Cultures as a an abstract term. This is Absolutely. people. Like yeah. people's lives.
1: But I think that's where that's where that's the difference between someone that is actually engaging and someone that is, you know, doing it for whatever you know uh, yeah. self aggrandizing reasons. Mm. It's not contacting with some mystical people. It's just contacting <laughs> with people. Yeah, exactly. And just yeah. just contact connecting on a human level. Yeah. The, and and what I enjoyed about that clip. Yeah is just that there's a few moments oh. of just captured shared humanity yeah. where it's like all culture, all... I loved
2: it when they laughed at the white fellas for being so stupid. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and, it's,
1: and, and, and then the, the white fella's laughing back. And it's yeah. just this acknowledgement of this kind of innate humanity just, just exists irrespective of yeah. perspective, culture, race, religion, anything. It's yeah. just the experience of being alive you know, yeah, and I like animal. that
2: idea of it being about connection and um, the to and fro of yeah. information um, because, and I'm sitting here saying, you know, we should learn from people. I'm saying that they are um, equally as valid as us and have things to contribute to the conversation. The, the weird, the thing that sat uncomfortably with me about that mm. is that it's um, white people going in to study Indigenous people but also that whole idea about people's faces and facial expressions and what they mean mm. feeds into racism that has had some very significant impacts on Indigenous people in Australia and other mm. um, people from other cultural groups as well. But in Australia in particular, so you there's the whole idea of um, biological determinism where um, races were categorised and... Valued according to which race they were, so Caucasians were the the ultimate, mm-hmm. if you like, and so. Sorry,
1: what round about when? When was this? Charles
2: Darwin era, right, okay. so mid nineteenth century, right. and so. African and Australian Aboriginal people were seen as less intelligent and some people used phrenology to Mm. say that the shape of your skull indicates your level of intelligence and that sort of thing as well. And so one of the things that's noticeable about Australian Indigenous skeletal morphology is that they can have a very prominent brow ridge Mm. and that is seen as an angry Trait, and so it's just a physical characteristic. It doesn't Mm. have a meaning. It doesn't mean that they are an angry people. (laughs) But because there's been so much emphasis placed on facial expressions and the meaning thereof, and and all of that, Mm. I think that it's so difficult for people for to divorce themselves from their own
1: experience, experience and cultural baggage,
2: and uh, assumptions and beliefs that they're not even aware they've got. Yeah. So I, I like to give David Attenborough the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, and he was definitely operating on the theories of the yeah. time.
1: But I think of all the footage I've ever seen of him, he approaches people with a genuine humanity. Yeah, and I think that's what separates him from, you know, the the white hunter from Jumanji mm. going into the tribe and like, oh, these are the yeah. tribal. Like, there's a real sense of this is so different from my experience, and I fully respect it without judgment.
2: Yeah, you're going to. wet your pants over this one. (laughs) One of my friends went to David Attenborough's house. Told you you'd wet yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I imagine it should just be this giant cabinet of curiosities.
2: He said it was the British Museum. This is the thing. So David Attenborough goes and does the wildlife documentaries. Mm. And while he's there, he collects the art and artefacts of people. Mm. And so, yeah, it was just this amazing collection of everything from his travels everywhere. (sighs) And so I think he's always had a very keen interest and curiosity and um, a degree of respect for the, the people that belong and live in the places where he's gone.
0: How could an ape man with small teeth managed to get into a carcass like this he could take a stone one that has just been chipped here on either side to produce a cutting edge and just such stones as this have been found with the skeletons of the earliest ape men of about two million years ago a razor sharp knife made in about 10 minutes and a deadly weapon in the hands of these people
2: in that clip, we saw the stone tools that were washed out of the bank up stream. But
0: the really interesting
2: thing were the hand axes. I've touched two of them in my lifetime. Courageous. 300,000 years old. Wow. And the next one was 800,000 years old. <sighs> and so to know that the person that made this was not Homo sapiens
1: uh-huh.
2: was was pre what we know of modern humans, yet... That's the beginning of all of our technologies mm. today. It just feels amazing to... Uh, I know that both of those were in collections and so had been handled by other people, but to think that the number of people that had touched those between when they were made and when I touched them is so small. Like, Was it,
1: it a spiritual experience?
2: Oh, absolutely. Mm. It It just drives this feeling of connection and <laughs> I, I think it sounds a bit wanky, but in my work in my comedy, even when I talk about archaeology, I like to celebrate common humanity, mm. universal humanity, but also celebrate cultural difference um, because I don't value any one culture as better than the other. Mm. And people will go, oh, the Romans were the pinnacle, and I'm like, mm. fuck the Romans. <laughs> I had a debate, one argument one day with Mary Beard, and she's Professor Mary Beard that does all the BBC Roman television shows, so she knows a lot more about the Romans than I do. But she was saying that the Romans were the best of us and the worst of us, and I'm like, they just do the same things we do, just in different ways and a different times. <laughs> and she's like, no, but they exposed their babies on the roadsides, and I'm like, we well, bought them before birth. <laughs> Deal with the same problem in different ways. Like yeah. it's it's just a
1: yeah. a different way using the tools of the time.
2: Yeah, mm. and so you make a judgment of is that barbaric, uh, and some things I guess are objectively barbaric, but.
1: Yeah you
2: understanding the full context.
1: When people look back on our time, and it's it's it's, it's, it's oh, horrific. Yeah. it's a horror. You know, and it's almost worse because we ask about the empty rhetoric of knowing the full weight of history that's behind us and being like, (laughs) oh, I would never participate in that. It's like, no, but you are. You are. Who made your clothes? Yeah. Come on. And
2: so I think archaeology has this reputation of looking at other cultures as exotic and interesting Mm. and fascinating. Mm. Mm. And it celebrates um, the biggest, the boldest, the oldest, the prettiest, the shiniest sort of thing. And I've. I like the the small things forgotten, the tiny little things that tell stories of people who haven't been focused on before. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that um, when people think of other cultures in the past, they think of Those things and how they conform to their own expectations of a culture. One of the biggest difficulties is the theory that aliens did it, which is inherently racist (laughs) because it just says, well, you know, these Indigenous people couldn't have had the smarts to build that. It must have been visiting aliens. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So we've got a lot to overcome. Yeah. And so... I saw the most amazing keynote speech at the World Archaeological Congress in 2013, and a professor called Martin Fobbs spoke about how archaeologists are complicit in war. And it's not just us being spies for the British or whatever. Yeah. And that has happened. Mm. Um, but it's about the fact that archaeologists look at culture and we categorise it. And so we draw those cut-off lines and we say people south of this are black and people north of it are white. And we then assign value. <laughs> so this whole cultural relativism has grown out of the way we other uh. cultures that aren't like ourselves. Mm. And you might get the impression that I'm going, archaeology sucks. Um I, I think it's it's good to have a curiosity about the past and it's good to have a curiosity about human culture. It's not good to assign a value to mm. it. And I think that's been the problem with um, war and cultural studies and, and all sorts of things.
1: And, and, and when you say assigning a value to a... A a past culture, are we talking, I guess, you know, through the Western lens, it's very much celebrating the grandeur of the great empires, right? Oh,
2: yes. And also progress. Yeah. And so you see that in the narrative of the show where he's suddenly got to 10,000 years ago and, and people have evolved to the point where we've decided to do agriculture.
0: Then came a revolution. And the trigger was this. A wild form of wheat or barley. It's got a lot of seeds. And about 10,000 years ago, man realized that he no longer need go searching for the wild plant. He could take these seeds and plant them. So, human beings were able to build their permanent homes in groups close by one another. In the Middle East and India, small villages appeared. And by 5,000 years ago, there were great cities.
1: I notice you're taking notes in that. So is that... Because that's the, that's the you know, the common story of humanity, that like it all kicked off 10,000 years ago when we got... In the present in
2: the Middle East yeah, and we that, domesticated animals and we, is that we not, grew wheat.
1: Is that still the consensus or is that not... It's
2: not the only story. Yeah. So Australian Indigenous people and Papua New Guinean people had agriculture at the same time. Mm. So that's definitely a multi-regional thing that sure. happened in similar times. The really great thing about that, there's a site called bujbim Bim in Victoria that that was nom- nominated and registered for World Heritage um, Protection last year. And it is the first Australian site that's been registered purely for its cultural values. Uh-huh. And so Australian Indigenous people of bujbim were farming eels 6,000 years ago, they had stone weirs and channels and all sorts of things and um, they, and grew them seasonally. They had stone building foundations. They were a settled community. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, if you read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, you'll hear all about how settled Aboriginal people were when explorers came through. He's used the explorers' diaries themselves to, really? to say what was known and then deliberately forgotten about the, yeah. the skill levels and the... Um, Gosh, skill levels sounds like a value judgment to me. But we've just... The narrative of our culture has been to cast uh, different societies as less than Mm. us and to cast Indigenous people as savages or whatever when they had an incredibly complex and rich society that existed in symbiosis with with its environment and we've come in and fucked that up. So, yeah, I had um, really strong thoughts when he was talking about the cultures could then be sedentary and they could domesticate animals and have a better, longer life. Yeah. Um, who says it was better? They had more malnutrition because they didn't have the variety
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. of diet that they had previously yeah. had. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you read Sapiens? The Yvonne... It's on my shelf. So there's a really interesting point he makes in that where he talks about the agricultural revolution. Mm -hmm. It's about when the agricultural revolution kicked off, all of a sudden you've got all these, you know, it's a Faustian bargain because all of a sudden there's, you know, pits of shit and there's disease and there's horrific lower back pain. But much like the technological revolution that we're all going through now, Mm -hmm. we're kind of a generation into it and it's... We've bought the ticket and we're on the ride. We can't get off this now. It it, 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 it will just keep churning on. Yes. Um... You know, and I guess that goes into what you were saying about this the value judgment on um, a different way of life. And I, t- I think a lot of the emptiness that people talk about in Western civilization is that disconnect from nature. just nature and being a – we are human, but we're also an animal and we don't really honor there, – There's there's no place in the society to honor the animal in us. And the animal just being a being existing in time and space, free of – the 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 stresses of the day or compartmentalizing the day into minutes <laughs> I and hours capitalism and... <laughs> 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 but you know what I mean I think that's I think that's where that ennui comes from that em- that 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 impl- yeah. that that, em- that emptiness that people can't put words to mm. and I think it's not being able to see the stars at night and oh just... you know what's
2: really interesting it's not just about being able to see the stars I grew up on a farm and then I've lived in towns and mm. um, suburbs of cities mm. and I have found out that I am incredibly unhappy if I can't see the horizon. Mm. And and I think that the majority of the Australian population and potentially the global population has lost that connection with looking at water, looking at the horizon. Fire. Fire. Mm. Yeah. And if you have a chance to get back to that, it's incredibly nourishing.
1: Oh, the fact that, you know, I mean, I was so separate from it as a kid. Just such, such a city kid and had a real mm-hmm. innate fear of nature. And there's nature. nothing
2: inherently bad with cities. Well, here we go. a value judgment. The,
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the older I get, the, the, the more issue I personally have with it. Yeah. Just how numb I have to make myself to it. Mm-hmm. Just the informational input that is constantly coming at me 24-7. Oh, yeah. It's an assault and it's getting more, increasingly hostile. Yeah. It's okay, not it's not benign. It's 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 a a hostile encroachment into your field of vision and your mm. field of consciousness at all times. Beyond your and control. I don't even have a smartphone.
2: Yes. yes you know what I mean? Yes. So
1: I don't even know how the average person isn't just dead, dead, dead I, and you know that that is becoming the kind of meme of the day.
2: I think I would probably be in a similar state if I lived in exactly. a city like this. Like yeah. I I live in Darwin in a um beachside suburb I can yeah, of course. walk the foreshore every morning.
1: Entire- Time moves differently in those places. The day I spent in the bush last weekend one of the longest days of the last ten years. It was it was a day like any other, but time was not segmented into seconds and minutes
0: Mm.
2: and
1: hours. It was segmented into tasks. And so you would just do a task until that task was done. Yes. And then oh, it just happens to have been a three hour task. But I wasn't in time. Exactly. Time as you know, you our have society to be aware defines of
2: the it. cycle of a day, so that you are prepared for darkness when yeah. it hits. But aside from that, there's an inherent freedom.
1: But I, I think that I think that's what we've lost, and I think that's so innate to us as a species. I think that's where all of the ingenuity and all of the ideas came from. It was just sitting free of time yes. and just allowing the. Natural process of the of this incredible organ to just work shit out. Oh,
2: absolutely! I think you're yeah. right about the impact of um, digital devices and all of that because it it um, gives you those dopamine hits, and it doesn't allow you to get bored mm-hmm. or contemplate or wonder.
1: Yeah, I think just the places your mind can go is um, incredible, and it feels like that is something that within another two or three generations will just be, in the main, just completely lost. Well,
2: this is the thing. I have to deliberately seek that now. And that actually came out of when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, before Phoebe was born. I used to be a runner. And I would run long distance and I would count my footsteps to regulate my breathing and it would be four steps in, four steps out. And after a while of that, you hit the zone, that runners talk about, and it's the runners high. Mm. And for me, it was fascinating because there is nothing going on in your brain. There it's are the no best. thoughts bombarding. Yep. It is yep. just so good. Yep. And so I think of, like we saw on the show, the Kalahari sand Bushmen mm. um, and their tradition of long distance running and hunts and that thing. And they would go into the zone, yeah. and, and it is such a pure state of being.
1: Well, I, I mentioned to you before when we watched it, I think it's in another, I can't remember which episode of which series. Mm. I think maybe The Life of Mammals where he talks about the Kalahari mm-hmm. bush hunters uh, and he shows a hunt uh, and, it, you know, I think it goes for seven or eight hours. Mm-hmm. And at one point, um, the bushman loses sight of the antelope that he's chasing. Yeah. And kind of gets down on his haunches and you can see it's not a trance or a magical, the, he channels the energy of the animal, but it's not through some kind of like, ooh, shamanism or whatever. It mm. is just purely being in that zone. Yeah. And it's, but it's, but it it's is mystical. Connection.
2: How would that yeah. animal be thinking yeah, 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 yeah. and adopt that?
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's mystical you know in its truest sense where it's like, it's. I y-
2: think that is yielding your humanity. Mm-hmm. To connect with that part of nature, which happens
1: yes. to be an individual animal, which happens to also be in you, yes, and it is something that can be accessed, and, but and that's and oh. that's also been lost as well. When I, I talk absolutely about
2: absolutely think that people are connected to nature, yeah, in a way that we
1: have lost or are losing, of course, and it manifests. You know, I mean, the fact that every human behaviour you can see somehow reflected in nature in other animals, oh, and yes. all through the, and I think it's the denial of that innate animal that is in us through religion, mainly Mm. judo-Christianity, you know, of like nature is fallen, nature is foul, you are not a beast, you are higher than. And it's the denial of the animal that has fucked us up so badly. Oh, absolutely. You know, if we could reckon with that, it would come out in more constructive ways than it does. You know, it wouldn't. You wouldn't need a, a real estate developer is not much different from a dog pissing on every post. It's the exa- <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the same kind of like mine, yeah. mine, 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 yes. mine, 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 mine. That's <laughs> yeah. mine as well. It's it's you know. But if that could be recognised for what it is, it would be easy to easier to uh, yeah. cope with.
2: I just love it. I think the whole connection of people to landscape is crucial to our well being. Hmm. And is something we've lost over the ten thousand years since the agricultural revolution Mm. begat cities.
1: Mm. Do you think it's going to fuck us up in the end? That separation.
2: I think it already has. Like, look at the systems we've got. Mm. We are so removed from Mm. where our food comes from, Mm. from where our clothing comes from, from what goes into making our cars and our devices, and and all of that that we don't care.
1: Well, that, I mean, I think that's the worst part about it: is that we know and we don't care. Yeah. People know.
2: Yeah, oh, we know. Everyone knows. Well, it's been in the news for decades. <laughs> that Leonard
1: Cohen song, everybody knows.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the really interesting thing, so the documentary showed Uruk in Iraq and the Cigarette of Ur, and that is the oldest brick building in the world. It's 7,000 years old, yeah. and the reeds that you see, papyrus reeds, are still there. But the reason that they have survived is because of climate change. There was a river there. The river moved mm-hmm. and that place became desert and that happened rapidly and all the people and it happened because of human activity. Mm. And so the people that lived in Uruk had to move. <laughs> and so it was a few
1: thousand people in a city. let was fast forward to <laughs> an archaeologist on a podcast a thousand years from now. From now. <laughs> and the people of Sydney just had to move. Exactly. Like, <laughs>
0: This is the last program in this natural history, and it's very different from all the others because it's been devoted to just one animal, ourselves. And that may have been a very misleading thing to have done. It may have given the impression that somehow man was the ultimate triumph of evolution, that all those thousands of millions of years of development had no purpose other than to put man on Earth. There is no scientific evidence whatsoever for such a belief. No reason to suppose indeed that man's stay on Earth should be any longer than that of the dinosaurs. He may have learned how to control his environment, how to pass on information from one generation to another. But the very forces of evolution that brought him into existence here on these African plains are still at work elsewhere in the world. And if man were to disappear for whatever reason, There is, doubtless, somewhere, some small, unobtrusive creature that would seize the opportunity and, with a spurt of evolution, take man's place.
1: Very good.
2: Fascinating. It's very
1: good. Like revolutionary for its time.
2: Yes, absolutely. Like, and the recognition of the impact of technological development yep. and the potential.
1: Like, obviously, it's of its time. Yes, nineteen seventy nine. Well,
2: I think it was actually quite progressive because yeah. he was trying to get a global perspective yep. and to respect and appreciate cultures. I we we know so much more now, and one of the greatest things about what we know now Mm. is that a diversity of perspectives improves our understanding of everything not just cultures but science and maths and astronomy whatever
1: the very fact that he has that qualification he gives at the end where he's like there is no Scientific evidence that man is the Has greatest a purpose bi- for being. Yeah, you know, and that's clearly him couching it for all the hyper-religious people who are watching the show. Oh, exactly. Going, we are the pinnacle of evolution, Well, not even evolution, just of you know <laughs> creation. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah, well, yeah.
2: Well, that's the thing too, and the interesting thing I thought was him making the point that humanity will end. Yes. Um, And we don't know which animal will grab the niche and go. (laughs) And it's like, you know,
1: rise of the chooks. (laughs) Planet of the ponies. (laughs) Well, it is true. I mean, if that meteorite hadn't hit, what would there be now?
2: It's all so much down to chance and luck. Mm. And so I think we need to individually at some stage in our life Appreciate the fact that we're here because we're lucky. Yep. And admittedly, some parts of this are shit, Mm. and it's hard, Mm. but it's just just been this enormous stroke of glorious luck that led to all of us existing here at this point in time. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that we are privileged, all of us, Relatively speaking, some more in the privileged universe. than others.
1: Yeah, <laughs> in the solar system, at least. <laughs>
2: well, well, on Earth, I've limit it to the planet. Yeah. But how good is humanity, right? I mean, yeah. we, we suck. Yeah. But look at us. Look at the life we've got. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Casey. Thank you so much. Thank for you so me. much. Yeah. It's awesome. <gasps> Thank you once again to my good friend Casey Martin-Stone for an awesome conversation as well as being an all-around pretty excellent human being. If you're interested in hearing more of her work, please check out her podcast. It is called Dig Me Up Later. Now, unfortunately, Casey has been having a really rough time of late. She's battling some really intense health issues and she's facing it with a lot of bravery, good humour and wisdom. But the truth is it's a rocky road and her recovery is going to take a while. A gofundme has been set up in her name so if you can help out at all please go to casey martin stone project Bounceback back on gofundme and give whatever you can thanks as always to my co-producer co-editor and sound wizard sean allen for his beautiful soundscapes as well as all the hard work that he's put into this season of the show now we just covered the last episode of life on earth but we are not done yet next week my guest is fauna and flora international vice president Australian TV legend and Sir David superfan Rove McManus we had one of my favorite conversations ever about our shared passion for nature reconnecting with childhood wonder as well as Rove's one-on-one experiences with Sir David Attenborough himself
0: Thank God for David Attenborough.